Hey guys, today's show is brought to you by one of our newest and favorite sponsors, and that is Photo IQ. Photo IQ offers digital photography online courses like none other of its kind. Okay, it's explained simply, concisely. There's no jargon, no overcomplications, and there are lessons for from beginner to intermediate photographer from ages 13 and up. It's the only digital photography course of its kind that offers online um, quizzes, personal feedback. You get to upload your your homework, and it'll help you build your own portfolio. It's going to be more in depth than anything you've probably taken in high school, and even if you took some like freshman level courses in college. Okay, and you can do this all socially distance from home. You know, we're all stuck in our houses under these uh, lockdown restrictions and, you know, some of your schools aren't open. Well, this is a great way to learn a new skill, maybe develop an alternate source of income and get that side gig starting to sort of free yourself up. So what I need you to do is go to photoiq.co and use the promo code FICTION. Okay, we're almost through September now. It's the it's the 18th. You have until the end of this month to get an additional 20% off on all of his courses. But that promo code fiction will get you 10% off plus the 20 he's already offering. You'll get 30% off as long as you buy the courses before the end of this month. And you can take them anytime that you want. Okay. Um, after this month, I'll still be able to get you 10% off, but that 20% is going to go by the wayside. He offers a 30 day money back guarantee. You got nothing to lose. So ditch those pathetic sunset pictures you guys have been taking. Go to photoiq.co, use promo code fiction and start learning how to take anything from camera basics, still life, food, landscapes, portraits black and white, action photos, everything that you could possibly imagine. He's got a course for it. It's going to be better than anything you can find on YouTube. So go to photoiq.co and use promo code fiction. All right, let's get on with the show. Anyone claiming that America's economy is in decline is peddling fiction. I've abandoned free market principles to save the free market system. so that you can uh, find out what is in it. Raising the debt ceiling does not increase our debt. It does not somehow promote profligacy. I know words. I have the best words. Nobody knows the system better than me, which is why I alone can fix it. Long live the greatest of all time. Oh boy, did we have a scare today in the Liberty community. I am happy to report on this Friday evening that the great Ron Paul is doing well. He's recovered, or he's recovering from what appeared to be a stroke that he had during a live stream. So we had quite the scare today in the Liberty community. And for a moment, it looked like the dumpster fire that is 2020 was going to try and take the great Ron Paul from us. And man, I couldn't imagine a worse thing to happen in 2020 than to lose that man. He has been, he, he is a legend in the libertarian community. He is a, an idol of mine. He's really the only politician that I've ever admired. And he may be the only politician that is worthy of admiration. All the rest of these uh, politicians with the, you know, maybe the exception of like a Thomas Massey or something like that. But he's not even close to being on the level of Ron Paul. They all deserve nothing but disdain from us. But the great Ron Paul, I mean, this guy doesn't have a mean bone in his body. He's right on everything. He stands up for what he believes in, even when it's tremendously unpopular. It takes an incredible amount of courage to do what he has done, to stand stand in front of uh, hostile crowds and, and, and stand up for your principles, 
when any other politician would would kowtow and and you know pander to the crowd and and backpedal and, oh you know uh, like Gary Johnson with the bake the cake thing or Ron Paul never did any of that and it didn't matter who he was talking to didn't matter who the crowd was or who was listening his stance never changed he is a staunch libertarian and he's done more for uh, the libertarian movement than anybody on the face of the earth and. I'm just so glad that he's all right and that he's um, recovering. I watched the man. I watched the video of the the live stream. I wasn't watching it live, but I uh, I was reading a, up an, an article this afternoon when I was doing some show prep, and I, I watched. Yeah, you know, I had never seen anybody actively have a stroke, and man, it's it's pretty tough to watch. It's uh, it's very very scary to see just how quickly. Those things, they just come out of nowhere. really makes you stop and think about how you're spending your time on this planet because you never know when something like that is going to happen. Just something, you know, some wiring gets crossed, something gets tripped, and and that could be the end of it. But thankfully, he's good. And welcome back, everybody. This is the Peddling Fiction Podcast. And I, of course, am your host, the voice and soul of so-called fiction, Johnny Profita doing what little part I can to carry on, uh, carry the torch for, for what Ron Paul started back in, what, 2008 now? Um, it's been 12 years, and that torch is on the verge of going out. We have a lot of very disturbing trends toward authoritarianism, totalitarianism, and away, away from liberty this day and age. And uh, this year has been nothing short of unbelievable just if you had talked to me a year ago about half the things that we would have to put up with that we would be enduring this year i would have thought you were crazy that could never something like that could never happen in america but here we are anyway i'm just uh i'm grateful that you know ron paul is still with us and it really makes you appreciate everything that he's done you know there's been a fair amount. I don't know if you you guys run in the the libertarian Twitter circles that I do, but there's been a, a fair amount of outpouring of support, you know, for him. And people post old old clips of him and debates or giving speeches and things like that. And it really does just um, make you yearn for the 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 2008 or 2012 election when you had a candidate like that in the running. I, I don't know how old. Doc, oh, I think he's 85. I believe he's 85 years old. So he's, get, I mean, he's getting up there, but, but hopefully he's going to live to at least 100, <laughs> maybe 150. You never know. But the guy is a worker, man. He just, he never stops. 85 years old. He's still doing, uh, the, I think, a, a daily podcast with the Ron Paul Liberty Report. He's doing interviews. He's doing live streams and things like that. I mean, man, to, to be that active at, at that age is very impressive. And the material that he puts out is always fantastic. So nothing but the utmost respect for that guy. And I wish him a speedy recovery. We need him. We we need him more now than ever. My God, do we need Ron Paul. We need to clone Ron Paul. And we need hundreds of thousands of Ron Pauls scattered throughout the country preaching liberty because... We are we are up against it right now. Um, shout out to Michael Malice's fucking Twitter, man. That thing, he has been savagely hilarious with the whole Ron Paul thing. It was um, he had one about how he was doing a great impression of Joe Biden, and another one about how he's still the the most articulate libertarian. <laughs> Oh, man. I mean, the Libertarian Party, I haven't seen anything from them. I don't know. I'm sure they they tweeted something out. I I wouldn't be surprised if it was just typical, like, canned politician-y response to something. But if they had just a fraction of Ron Paul's ability to explain the principles of libertarianism and to get a, a movement, a real movement started and to carry it, Man, just like one tenth of of what Ron Paul has in his like Liberty Pinky, the uh, the Libertarian Party would be uh, in pretty good shape. But of course, they are as big a train wreck as any of the other parties, if not more so. 
and quite an embarrassment, I must say. Um, at least most of them are. The the Mises Caucus is is still doing some good stuff there. But anyway, um, it is Friday. I did not do the usual Thursday episode because it was my birthday. I turned 36 yesterday, and I actually almost forgotten that that it was my birthday because I already I, I already celebrated it with my family before I came down here so um, I had already sort of done the whole birthday thing and the 24th of September really snuck up on me but I decided after work that I was going to take it easy have a few cocktails I had some friends come over that you know live live down here that I've I've met on previous trips and we had a, a pretty nice night hanging out at the pool, drank a little too much, you know, the usual shenanigans. But it didn't rain. It hasn't rained. Um, it, it rained today. It's It might actually be raining right now somewhere around here. But it, we had a storm uh, a couple hours ago. But we had a, like two days of, of no rain, which has been rare the last, um, I think, the month of September. It, it usually rains br- at least briefly every night, right around like uh, 6 or 7 o'clock or something like that. So um, it was nice that the weather held up. Yesterday was just a, a beautiful day all the way around, and I was convinced that there would be a storm, but there never was. Not one drop of rain, and uh, had, had a nice night, made some good food, had some good company, you know. It might be the first birthday I've celebrated abroad, which was interesting. And you know, I'm, friend, I'm down here often enough that I've, I've gotten to know the, the staff that like works the pool and the security guards and everything. And um, we were, I was talking to, to one of the ladies that works here yesterday at the pool. And I think, I, I, I don't know why, why the subject of my birthday came up. I think she was talking about age or something. And she asked me how old I was. And I was like, actually, I'm 36 today. And uh, the sweetheart got me a made me a uh trace leches cake <laughs> um she brought it down to the pool today and uh gave me a piece of it with brought a candle and then next thing i know a bunch of these a bunch of the mexican staff are singing this weird song that i, I couldn't understand half of it it's some weird birthday song that they do and um and it was uh it was nice they're they're great people down here and i think you know a lot of the people that come down to where i stay they're kind of like uppity uh, rich folks you know especially the the hispanic people that come down here they really treat the the staff disrespectfully you know they have no respect for them they're just um like they're they treat them like they're servants they don't clean up after themselves they're kind of they're really rude to them and I think one of the reasons, like, they just fucking love me. And uh, usually if I'm down here with buddies or whatever, they they, they have a blast with us because we're nice to them. We're friendly. We talk. We, like, uh, you know, we don't make a mess. We don't cause problems. We usually, you know, take care of the, the night security guards when we come back from a night on the town. We'll bring them some pizza or something like that. You know, just little things that, that show your appreciation for them and, and treat them like the human beings that they are. I don't know. I just thought that was... She didn't have to do that, and um, I think she's trying to win over. <laughs> she's She's got a thing for one of my friends that's usually down here with me. I don't know. I think he's afraid to come back down now because he doesn't want to get accosted at, at the pool by her. I think it's getting a little awkward, but she might be trying to uh, get in my good graces, so I put the word in for her or something. I don't know. But anyway, nice girl. Had a nice night, and um, just had a great time on the beach, so that's why there was no episode. Yeah, I usually walk the the beach every day at least once, sometimes twice in the morning and then the afternoon. If I'm looking to get a little exercise and just do some some people watching or something. And it really is, I don't know what is going on. I don't know like do do Americans do the same thing on the beach? Like I haven't been to a lot of American beaches recently. I mean, I, I live in Chicago. The beach there is just a fucking shit show when it's when it's nice out, you know, it's like overcrowded. There's people everywhere. I'd much rather get out on, on somebody's boat than be at the beach. But I'm walking up and down the beach and I see all of these um, Mexicans taking provocative p- 
pictures of their girlfriends. <laughs> like, what the fuck is this? Do do American guys do this with their girlfriends? Th- these girls, you know, they're in like a thong bikini or something and like sticking their ass out. And these guys are like their official photographers for Instagram or something. The girls I would date would always want to take selfies and shit like that. And of course, I would refuse. But this this is a whole new level. I mean, you're like photographing your girlfriend for future Tinder banks because, you know, the second that relationship is over, all those pictures that you took of her on the beach, bending over with her ass hanging out, those are going right up on the date site for some other guy to uh, have his way with. (laughs) It's always a guy that's like outkicked his coverage by about 40 yards, too. Like a guy, you could just tell by looking at him, wouldn't know what to do with a naked chick if she just fell into his lap. I mean, man, uh, there's just, I would never, (laughs) I don't know, whatever. I I was just thinking about that for some reason. Anyway, we have some developments with the whole Supreme Court nominee uh, process. As today, I believe, was the funeral for, the official funeral for Ruth Bader Ginsburg. I, I know I saw a couple politicians virtue signaling and tweeting about how they got to pay their um, final respects to the great late RBG, notorious RBG. And I know I, I talked a lot about the Supreme Court in general and a little bit about Ruth uh, Bader Ginsburg on the last episode. And I thought I'd circle back now that I've had another another few days of listening to politicians talk and, and Twitters and all kinds of uh, craziness. You know, it's it's nice being out here where I don't, um, I don't, I'm not subjected to any of the U.S. news media. So I haven't been watching any of the the coverage of this. Maybe I should check on some uh, YouTube videos or something to just to make sure that I'm uh, staying apprised of all the the developments. But you know, you keep seeing all of this. You know, Ruth Bader Ginsburg is to be admired because she fought for what she believed in. She inspired people to become lawyers and to do the same. And and this kind of stuff just it, it really drives me crazy. I can't stress enough that fighting for what you believe in is not at all what a Supreme Court justice is supposed to do. It, in fact, it's the exact opposite. What you believe in is irrelevant, okay? All you're supposed to do is apply the Constitution to whatever legislation or whatever case is is coming up in front of the Supreme Court. Is it constitutional? Is what the the state doing constitutional or not? Have they overstepped their bounds? That's it. It doesn't matter what you believe in. It doesn't matter if you want Obamacare, if you think universal health care is a good idea. Is the government authorized to do such a thing under the Constitution? And of course, the answer to everything is practically, no. No, they can't do it. But that never stopped old Ginsburg from fighting for what she believed in. And of course, her dying wish was to push off the nomination until after the election, right? This is what every politician on Twitter is tweeting about now. Every Democratic politician. We're, you know, Republicans are hypocrites. We're fighting to preserve Ruth Bader Ginsburg's dying wish. With her last breath of of air on this planet, she begged that we not fill her seat, her vacant seat, until after the election. And I got to tell you, my bullshit meter is going off the charts on this one. This just reeks of complete bullshit. The idea that... You know, somebody who's, uh, what, 87 years old, she's dying. It's her last uh, couple of minutes on Earth, and that's what she's concerned about. When the, the nominee gets, um, gets confirmed in the Senate, I mean, even if that is true, that is just such a pathetic way to go out. After 87 years on the planet, that's the last thing you want to say to the world? That's the, the knowledge you're going to impart? That's what you're, you're going to leave your loved ones with? Don't fill my seat until after the election. Who cares? You're going to be dead. Oh, my God. And it is fitting that her, even her alleged dying wish went against the Constitution. <laughs> I mean, everything she did violated the Constitution um, that she, of course, was tasked with upholding and applying diligently. And, you know, the Constitution, it doesn't require the, the president to nominate 
uh, um, somebody immediately or whatever, but it does authorize him to do so. So, you know, Republicans are well within their right. You know, Donald Trump can nominate a Supreme Court nominee. It doesn't matter that it's his last year in office or that it's an election year, or that there's an election right around the corner. None of that matters. Okay. Uh, the Constitution authorizes it. They get to do it. And then it goes to the Senate for confirmation. Now, I talked about the hypocrisy coming out of both sides, Democrats and Republicans, because they literally just flip-flopped. Uh, they, they just changed positions on this. And so the, the position that the, the Democrats took when Obama was trying to nominate somebody in his final year in office is now the position that the Republicans are taking and the position the Republicans took to combat Obama's uh, nomination, not really combat it, but just the, the rhetoric that they spewed forth during his nomination process is now what the Democrats are, are um, champ- championing. So th- that's all pretty hilarious. But, you know, the problem is that the Republicans should have just been honest about why they were going to deny Obama's nominee. If Republicans had just been honest back then about why they were going to deny Obama's nomination, they wouldn't have any of these, um, you know, the the Democrats wouldn't have any of this uh, ammunition to hit them over the head with. And of course, politicians just can't help but lie. I mean, you know, that old joke, how do you know a politician's lying? His lips are moving or their lips are moving. And now they've opened themselves up to all this criticism. Like all they had to do, all they had to say at the time was like, listen, Obama's going to nominate a, a judge that has, you know, democratic leanings that go against the Constitution. We don't want that type of judge elected to the Supreme Court. And we think that if, you know, if we can win the election, we'll we'll get we'll be able to get a, a more uh, Republican leaning judge on the Supreme Court. I mean, why not just be honest about it? I mean, it's not like they did anything illegal. You know, they they controlled the Senate. So the fact that, you know, they didn't confirm his nomination was, in fact, I have some numbers on this as, as to how historically these things have played out. But, you know, by lying about it and coming up with these retarded arguments, be like, oh, well, you know, we have an election coming up and the people's voice needs to be heard and and all that stuff. Now they open themselves up to all this criticism. And not that, you know, the Democrats haven't either, but the media is only going to slam the Republicans for their hypocrisy. The Democrats are always going to get a pass. I, I don't know if I, where I read this or if I heard it, but the um, somebody was going over the amount of times historically that there's been a Supreme Court seat that's been vacant in the final year of a, of a president's term. And, you know, because if you were listening to like Chuck Schumer or Elizabeth Warren or something like that, this is like unprecedented. This is the height of, you know, this is in violation of everything that we hold dear in our democracy, and this goes against the Constitution, and this is unprecedented action, and it requires an unprecedented response from Democrats, and we're going to stack the courts, and we're going to riot in the streets because this is wrong, and blah, 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 right? So I believe 29 times there's been a Supreme Court seat that has vacated in the president's last year in office, Okay. 19 times, 19 out of the 29 times, the Senate and the president were from the same party, okay? So of those 19 times where the, you know, where one political party controlled the Senate and the presidency, 17 out of the 19 Supreme Court justices that they nominated were confirmed, okay? 17 out of 19 when the same party controls the Senate and the presidency. 19 out of 19 had a nomination. So every time that, you know, every time that there's been a vacant seat in the president's last year, um, the, the president, the president nominated somebody now. So all 29 times, actually, you know, the, the Supreme court seat has been vacant. The, the president nominated somebody. Okay. So of those 19 instances, 17 out of the 19 were nominated and confirmed. The other 10 times when you had a president and a Senate from different parties, which is what happened under Obama in his last year, only two out of the 10 were confirmed. Okay. So this is not unprecedented. What Republicans are doing now is actually 
very precedented. Okay. This is like in lockstep with everything that's been happening in the history of the Supreme Court. Okay. So to act like they're, they're, you know, going way out of bounds here by, you know, trying to ram through a nomination or something like that. Oh, oh, I mean, of course, why would they wait? Why, you know, I, you know, why risk having, you know, losing the election or losing the Senate in the election and then not not being able to nominate your judge. Like, what what benefit does that have? I mean, the only perceived benefit that I think I talked about on the last podcast was that you could use it as a way to um, generate, you know, voter turnout for your side. If you think that's what's going to, you know, get people that were going to stay home to come out and vote, maybe you could dangle the Supreme Court nomination in front of them. But that's, like I said, that's risky because you could... You might lose the the presidency, but more importantly, you could lose the Senate and the ability to confirm your your president's nominee. Because even if they lose the election, he still has till you know January first or whatever to nominate a uh, Supreme Court justice. So this whole thing about you know RPG's dying wish, like don't fill my seat until they they fill the seat every time, almost every time when the president and the senator from the same party, 17 out of 19, every single time the president at least makes a nomination. So the idea that, you know, Trump shouldn't nominate anybody until after the election is just ludicrous. Um, that That's never happened before. Every single time the president has made a nomination. Now, it, it gets a lot harder when you don't control the Senate to get your nominee through in, in such a short period of time. It really is just unbelievable, as if there's like some clause in the the Constitution where we need to honor the dying wishes of a previous Supreme Court justice. I mean, this is all just so insane. Um, But man, does it have people all riled up? How great would it be? I really hope uh, when Ron Paul really does leave us that he gets a dying wish. And how great would it be if it's end the Fed with his last breath, his last breath on earth? is end the Fed. And then, of course, he leaves us. But as great as that would be, it of course, there's just no way Ron Paul is going to waste his last breath on something like that. It will be something more inspiring, loving, caring, and brilliant, sort of all rolled into one, because that's who Ron Paul is. And I, uh, no, I've never met him or anything. <laughs> but There's some people that you can just tell are, uh, are good people. And he is one of the great ones. Anyway, the uh, the actual, the, the big news, I guess, today around the nomination is that Trump is apparently, according to anonymous sources, and you know how much we love those, Trump is going to nominate Judge Amy Coney Barrett to the Supreme Court. And I mentioned the, the two that were in the running on the last podcast, and I didn't. I couldn't remember their names off the top of my head. This is the um, the the religious one, the Christian conservative gal. So it doesn't look like he's going with the Latina. He's going with the Christian conservative. President Trump has selected Amy Coney Barrett, the favorite candidate among conservatives, to succeed Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, and will try to force Senate confirmation before Election Day in a move that would significantly alter the ideological makeup of the Supreme Court for years. Mr. Trump plans to announce on Saturday that she is the choice, according to people close to the process who have asked to be remained uh, anonymous, blah, blah, blah. The president met with Judge Barrett at the White House this week and came away impressed with a jurist that leading conservatives told him would be a female Antonin Scalia, referring to the justice who died in 2016, and for uh, for whom Judge Barrett clerked. Barrett is most feared by liberals, some of whom concede that she is a top-notch legal mind. Many have focused on Judge Barrett's devout Catholicism and therefore the abortion debate. She is a perfect combination of brilliant jurist and a woman who brings the argument to the court that is potentially the contrary to the views of the sitting women justices, said Marjorie Dannon Felser, the president of the Susan B. Anthony list and the anti an anti abortion political group who has praised Mr. Trump enti- Mr. Trump's entire short list of candidates. Additionally, as New York Times noted earlier this week, liberal groups have been sounding the alarm over Judge Barrett for two years because of concerns over how she might rule on abortion and the Affordable Care Act. Amy Coney Barrett meets Donald Trump's two main litmus tests. 
She has made clear she would invalidate the ACA and take health care away from millions of people and undermine women's reproductive freedom, said Nan Aaron. Nan Aran? Nan Aran. That's the name. President of Alliance for Justice, a liberal group. Listen, um, taking away the ACA is not taking away people's health care. God, I hate it when they fucking lie like that. Anyway, in 2017, a law review article written before she joined the appeals court, Judge Barrett was critical of Chief, Chief Justice John Roberts' 2012 decision sustaining a central provision of the Affordable Care Act, saying he had betrayed the commands of textualism. Chief Justice Roberts pushed the Affordable Care Act beyond its plausible meaning to save the statute, she wrote, and she would be absolutely right about that. The court will again hear arguments on the fate of the law in November, and Judge Barrett's article suggests that she would give its challengers a sympathetic hearing. Well, thank God for that can finally get some of this unconstitutional stuff rolled back a little bit. Oh, the whore. However, in one of her most revealing opinions, Barrett took an expansive view of the Second Amendment, dissenting to the right of two colleagues who were appointed by President Ronald Reagan. In the world of conservative judges, she has particularly strong credentials. Judge Barrett began clerking for Justice Antonin Scalia 22 years ago, and her fellow clerks are quick to say she was his favorite. She graduated summa cum laude, from Notre Dame Law School and joined the faculty in 2002, earning praise from colleagues as an astute scholar and jurist, even if they did not always agree on her jurisprudential premises. In this case, barring some unforeseen disaster, there appears little Democrats can do, despite the threats to delay a vote on Barrett, solidifying a right-leaning shift to the courts for a generation. Yeah, you know, it's going to be tough if the um, they, they don't have the votes in the Senate to, to stop it. And that is literally their own fault. This was the, you know, the Democrats under Harry Reid did away with the supermajority that they used to have to get to confirm something. Nothing warms the cockles of my heart more than watching politicians have to lay in the bed that they made. I mean, what did you think was going to happen? You short sighted like I, Harry Reid doesn't care. Um, cause he's out of there now, but you know, the Chuck Schumers of the world, they, they were all responsible for, for this new, um, threshold that is much easier to meet, especially when you have the, the vice president who, who can, you know, count as a tiebreaker or whatever. Um, this is, this is the, a disaster of their own making from their, you know, a disaster from their perspective uh, of their own making. And, you know, you reap what you sow. I don't know what to tell you. Except that, yeah, I don't like the fact that we have these justices for life. I don't know what the solution is because anytime, I mean, you'd have to have some sort of term limit, but you can't make it too short. Otherwise, you could really get some overzealous judges trying to do some judicial activism, you know, before their their time runs out or whatever. But the idea, you know, the idea behind the whole lifetime appointment thing was so that, you know, they would remain apolitical, right? They wouldn't be influenced by politics or, you know, or they wouldn't be influenced by trying to, you know, trying to be popular, trying to do the popular thing. So they get reelected year after year or anything like that. Like they're appointed for life. Their job is safe no matter what. And now they can just focus on applying the constitution. Well, clearly that, that never panned out. This is like the the whole thing is politicized. You have Democrat judges and you have Republican judges, and that's it. I mean, they it, it's pretty obvious to tell based on their ruling what their political ideology is because that's the way they rule. They they fight for what they believe in, as you know. People keep telling us that's why Ruth Bader Ginsburg is such a hero because she fought for what she believed in. No, no, they're not supposed to do that, and they they all do it now. It just happens to be that the Republican judges believe in limited government, at least most of them do. And so usually what they fight, what, what they're fighting for, for what they believe in, it, it's to at least appear to want to limit the, the size and scope of government. But they've, you know, they've been every step of the way, they've watched us go from the smallest government in the world to the biggest government in the world. They're involved in healthcare and banking and all, all this other shit that they shouldn't be doing. We've had Republican judges on the Supreme Court. So anyway, things are heating up. The election is right around the corner. And now we're going to get this. We'll have the month of October. Maybe that's going to be the October surprise everybody's looking for. 
would be the uh, the new Supreme Court nominee getting confirmed and getting in there. I'm sure it won't be the last shoe to drop before Election Day. We I have an article here about they're already having some problems with mail-in ballots. But first, let's take a quick second and thank our other dear, dear, dear sponsor of the show. You know him as Lorenzotti Coffee. Guys, if you like premium Italian coffee, but you hate going to these corporate, poorly managed, poorly prepared coffee houses, Starbucks, Dunkin' Donuts, things like that, especially now where you got to put on a mask on and stand in a socially distanced line. You're going to love Lorenzotti Coffee. They deliver premium Italian coffee and coffee brewing supplies right to your door. It's a small business that was started by two liberty-minded entrepreneurs who came together over their love of coffee and their desire to bring that small, independent coffee house feel back here across the pond to the United States. So what I want you to do is go to lorenzotti.coffee and use my promo code FICTION so they know I sent you, and they'll give you 10% off your order. Even if you're not a coffee drinker yourself, I'm sure you know someone who does, and these tins are beautiful. They'd make a great you know, portion of a gift basket or something like that if you wanted to send somebody that you care about a package. Maybe you know somebody who's got a birthday coming up like I just had or something like that. And they want some coffee. You know? Go to Lorenzotti.coffee, use promo code FICTION, and you'll get 10% off. All right, so let's, let's get our first round of post office shenanigans coming out of Wisconsin, the swing state. The police over there are investigating how three trays of mail, which included absentee ballots, ended up in a ditch after the mail was found at 8 a.m. Tuesday morning near a highway before it was immediately turned over to the U.S. Postal Service. That's great. Give it right back to them. I'm sure they'll deal with it. The United States Postal Inspection Service immediately began investigating, and we we reserve further comment on this matter until that is complete, said the USPS spokesperson. That's great. So this is like the cops. They just get to investigate themselves. The incident comes a mere five weeks before the presidential election, which had been steeped in partisan bickering over the system of mail-in and absentee ballots and wavering trust in the alternate system. Due to the coronavirus pandemic, which marked a grim milestone this week of over 200,000 deaths in the U.S., allegedly, voters are expected to cast ballots in the mail in record numbers. We expect more than 3 million Wisconsin residents to vote in the November election, which means even more first-time absentee by male voters. Prior to the pandemic, just 6% of Wisconsin voters casted absentee absentee ballots by mail. However, during the state's April primaries, that number jumped to 60%, when 1.1 million out of 1.55 votes were 1.55 million votes were conducted through the postal service. During the August partisan primary, Wolf said that 82% of the 867,000 votes cast were via absentee ballot. Yep. So we're going to have a lot of this. Meanwhile, in Pennsylvania, the FBI and the Office of the United States Attorney found nine discarded mail-in ballots from members of the military, all cast for President Trump. Look how that worked out. According to the Department of Justice, since Monday, FBI personnel working together with the Pennsylvania State Police have conducted numerous interviews and recovered and reviewed certain physical evidence. Election officials in the Luzerne County have been cooperative. At this point, we can confirm that a small number of military ballots were discarded. Investigators have recovered nine ballots at this time. Some of those ballots can be attributed to specific voters and some cannot. All nine ballots were cast for presidential candidate Donald Trump. On Thursday, President Trump told Fox News' Byron Kilmeade on his radio show that the mail-in ballots are a horror show and that the missing ballots are emblematic of thousands of ballots which could get lost this year. That's a a typo. It's not Byron. It's Brian Kilmeade. Yeah, I I remember that guy. Um, Yeah, so, I mean, this is the the tip of the iceberg. Of course, par for the course. Not not just um, incompetence, but... It looks like um, just outright shenanigans going on. And this is, I mean, I talked about the, the problems with mail-in ballots before on the show, so you can go back and listen to those episodes. But man, this is going to be a just complete shit show. We're not going to have a, a nom. we're not going to know who the president is for like the rest of the year. 
<laughs> I don't know how long it's going to take them to count all these and then it's going to go through the courts and it's going to be disputed. But no matter what, like half the country is going to feel like they got screwed out of the election. I just, we're really coming apart at the seams here. It's going to be quite a tumultuous 2020 and probably the next four years as well, regardless of who wins the election. We'll be keeping an eye on, on that sort of stuff to see what kind of shenanigans are going down, but it, it certainly looks like they're laying the groundwork to dispute these these election results one way or the other. Anyway, the, uh, the other story I wanted to talk about today, this is from an op-ed that I, I came across on MarketWatch, the, the website MarketWatch. And, and the, the opinion is, we need to act boldly now if we are to avoid economy-wide lockdowns to halt climate change. And it says we're approaching a tipping point on climate change when protecting the future of civilization will require dramatic interventions. As COVID-19 spread earlier this year, governments introduced lockdowns in order to prevent a public health emergency from spinning out of control. In the near future, uh, the world may need to resort to lockdowns again, this time to tackle a climate emergency, shifting Arctic ice raging wildfires in western U.S. states and elsewhere, a methane gas leaks in the North Sea are all warning signs that we are approaching a tipping point on climate change. Of course, everything's a warning sign. Under a climate lockdown, governments would limit private vehicle use, ban consumption of red meat, and impose extreme energy-saving measures, while fossil fuel companies would have to stop drilling. To avoid such a scenario, we must overhaul our economic structures and do capitalism differently. Three interconnected crises. COVID-19 is itself a consequence of environmental degradation. One recent study dubbed it the disease of the anthropocene. I don't know what that means. Moreover, climate change will exacerbate the social and economic problems highlighted by the pandemic. These include governments diminishing capacity to address public health crises, the private sector's limited ability to withstand sustained economic disruption, and pervasive social inequality. Oh, good grief. These shortcomings reflect the distorted values underlying our priorities. For example, we demand the most from essential workers, including nurses, supermarket workers, and delivery drivers, while paying them the least. Without fundamental change, climate change will worsen such problems. The, the climate crisis is also a public health crisis. Global warming will cause drinking water to degrade and enable pollution-linked respiratory diseases to thrive. According to some projections that have never been right, 3.5 billion people globally will live in unbearable heat by 2070. Um, okay. Addressing this triple crisis, the triple crises requires reorienting government, uh, corporate governance, finance, policy, and energy systems towards a green economic transformation. To achieve this, three obstacles must be removed. Business that is shareholder-driven instead of stakeholder-driven. Finance that is used in inadequate and inappropriate ways and government that is based on outdated economic thinking and faulty assumptions. Well, I can't fault them for the, the last one, except that I guarantee you that their, their um, outdated economic thinking is some weird way of saying capital. they believe in capitalism, free market capitalism. Uh, corporate governance must now reflect stakeholders' need instead of shareholders' whims. Building an inclusive, sustainable economy depends on productive cooperation among the public and private sectors and civil society. This means firms need to listen to trade unions and workers' collectives community groups, consumer advocates, and others. Likewise, government assistance to businesses must be less about subsidies, guarantees, and bailouts, and more about building partnerships. This means attaching strict conditions to any corporate bailouts to ensure that taxpayer money is put to productive use and generates long-term public value, not short-term private profits. Yeah, um... Taxpayer money is never put to productive use, okay? And it never generates long-term value either. 
In the current crisis, for example, the French government conditioned its bailouts for Renault and Air France on emission reduction commitments. France, Belgium, Denmark, and Poland denied state aid to any company domiciled in the European Union-designated tax haven and barred large recipients from paying dividends or buying back their own shares in 2021. Likewise, U.S. corporations received government loans through the Coronavirus Aid, Relief, and Economic Securities, or the CARES Act, were prohibited from using the funds for share buybacks. Not ambitious enough. These conditions are a start, but not ambitious enough either from a climate perspective or economic terms. The magnitude of government assistance assistance packages does not match firms' requirements, and the conditions are not always legally binding. For example, the Air Force emissions policy only applies to short domestic flights. Far more is needed to achieve a green and sustainable recovery. For example, another example, governments might use the tax code to discourage firms from using certain materials. They might also introduce job guarantees to company at company or national level so the human capital is not wasted or eroded. Uh, no, that's that's exactly what that would do. A job guaranteeing a job that is no longer productive or necessary is a waste of human capital by definition. Jesus Christ. This would help the youngest and oldest workers who have disproportionately suffered job losses owing to the pandemic and reduce the likely economic shocks and disadvantaged reason uh, regions already suffering industrial decline. Finance needs fixing, too. During the 2008 financial crisis, oh, this will be great, governments flooded the markets with liquidity. But because they did not direct it toward good investment opportunities, much of the funding ended up back in a financial sector unfit for the purpose. (laughs) Yeah, that's exactly what the problem was. Nailed it. You fucking nailed it, kid. The current crisis presents an opportunity to to harness finance in productive ways to drive long-term growth. Patient long-term finance is key because of a three- to five-year investment cycle doesn't match a long lifespan of a wind turbine, which is more than 25 years. (laughs) Or, yeah, okay, all these companies only have three- to five-year investment cycles. Or encourage the innovation needed in e-mobility, natural capital development such as rewilding programs, and green infrastructure. Some governments have already launched sustainable growth initiatives. New Zealand has developed a budget based on well-being, in quotes, metrics. That'll be great. Well-being metrics, whatever that fucking means, rather than GDP, to align public spending with broader objectives. While Scotland has established the mission-oriented Scottish National Investment Bank, along with steering finance toward a green transition, we need to hold the financial sector accountable for its often destructive environmental impact. The Dutch Central Bank estimates that Dutch financial institutions' biodiversity footprint represents a loss of over 58,000 square kilometers of pristine nature in an area 1.4 times larger than that of the Netherlands. I wonder what the um, environmental footprint of your gigantic totalitarian government would be, out of curiosity. Okay, I'm... He goes into talk about entrepreneurial stuff here. The Green Revolution government must, you know, have policy to steer us in that direction. Okay, I mean it's pretty clear that this is just a bunch of Marxist drivel, right? That all these uh, socialist policies—they always want to harness things. We need to master plan everything, and we need to harness the finance to do this for the workers, and we need to micromanage every aspect of everyone's lives. We're gonna harness this. We're gonna punish that. We're gonna use the tax code to to make sure that businesses do what we want, and we need to form a union of worker. You know, the decisions have to be made collectively by the workers and the people. We need a democracy. A democratic economy that works for everybody and you know this is what marxists do right this is what they the socialists do they utilize environmentalism to get their radical agendas in every aspect of life pushed through right now all of a sudden climate change is somehow related to the economy and that affects like how how businesses organize themselves and workers unions and all the like the leaps that they make are absolutely fucking ridiculous but this is what they do they take advantage of people's love for the environment and environmentalist passions and the stupidity of people when it comes to 
the stupidity and irrationality of people when it comes to the environment and they utilize environmentalism to get their Marxist revolution pushed forward. I mean, it's clear that this is literally just the backdoor way into Marxism. They want to radically transform the entire country or maybe even the world into one big socialist utopia. Anyway, I don't have time to cover all the the falsehoods and misguided ideology in this op-ed, so I'm going to leave all that Marxist crap for another day. That's probably a podcast in and of itself. What I want to focus on here is the fact that they're they're already hinting at using this new lockdown strategy think that, that's come around thanks to COVID to deal with climate change, okay? These are... These are the dangers that that come about from allowing government involvement in the sciences and allowing science to be politicized. When it comes to science, you can't have a left or a right. You can't have liberal or conservative. You can't have Democrat or Republican. You can't have that slant to your science. It has to be about the truth and finding the real truth. Not only do you end up with a bunch of bullshit pseudoscience instead of focusing on attaining the truth and figuring out the world around us, but they they start allowing their political ideology to influence their approach. And even if they don't believe what they claim to believe, if they don't believe in climate change, they still pretend to so that they get the government funds and grants for their research. The government can then turn around and point to all these scientists that back their views and use them and all their bullshit research to justify all sorts of power grabs and intrusions into our lives. I mean, think of all the stuff that that guy was talking about. All these strings attached to it. You know, the government's going to invest in this. They're going to make businesses do that. They're going to lock us down again. You're not going to be able to eat meat and you're going to, your company's going to have to abide by these standards and produce this stuff. This is, whew, this is chilling, right? I mean, it was bad enough that they used this virus to lock us all down for six months. I mean, at least that was one thing, like a virus. Okay, you could point to it and you could be like, listen, there's this thing and we need to get this under control. So we're going to shut everything down. I mean, they will never be using anything as specific as a a virus ever again if they don't have to right when it comes to stuff like this they're going to point to their scientists and it's never going to be anything that's specific or uh, testable or verifiable they'll be as as vague as and nondescript as possible like they are with like the war on terror and things like that they will continue to move the goalposts and alter the mission and the benchmarks and things like that just like they did with covid right? Two weeks to flatten the curve so we don't overwhelm the hospitals. That was six months ago, almost seven months ago now. And here we are. Just think back to all the shit that they got wrong and all the flip-flopping the government did on COVID. You know, I did a whole episode on the CDC's fumbling of the issue from day one. They flip-flopped on masks. They've put, you know, the, the government's put the the most vulnerable people, the, the old people in nursing homes, they, they put them at risk by, by exposing them to, you know, um, infected patients. I mean, a year ago, we knew that they would push this whole climate change nonsense to get massive legislation like the Green New Deal passed. And as bad as that would be, holy shit, climate change lockdowns. I mean, they can make anything up that they want and try to force us to stay in our homes, close our businesses, make some sort of fucked up deal with the government where you get these public-private partnerships and you have to abide by these standards and you know, you'll get this money, but it's going to come with all these strings attached and they'll continue to further erode and destroy our economy. This is the perfect example of why you can never allow the government to take any power, to take any liberties from you. Once they have it, that's it. It's over. Not only will you never get it back and your liberties are gone, but now they have the president. Now they have the precedent to do what they normally could not do. They've done it before for an emergency, and now all they have to do is declare something an emergency, and boom, they get to do it again. 
I mean, you can see it now. Like this article, anytime there's any weather or weather-related event, they, they just jump right on the climate change thing. Wildfires, climate change. Tornado, climate change. Drought, climate change. Floods, climate change. Hurricanes, climate change. It's too hot. Oh, that's climate change. It's too cold. Oh, that's climate change. There's lots of snow. That's climate change. There's not enough snow. That's climate change. The ocean levels are rising. That's climate change. The ocean levels are falling. That's climate change. I mean, it's brilliant. Whatever they want. Yeah, climate changes. Hang on. Let me write that down. I've also done an episode on climate change pretty pretty in-depth. The whole episode, I think, was devoted to it. So I urge you guys to go back and listen to that where I debunk a lot of the climate change hysteria. But you know how you could tell that it's all a bunch of complete bullshit? We just had a, a lockdown of the world for six months, right? Have any of their ridiculous doomsday scenario models for climate change, have they been modified at all? Have they changed to take into account that we stopped doing everything for like at least the first month? Nobody was doing shit. There were no cars on the road. Nobody was doing anything. We were all just sitting inside of our houses. That's a pretty big variable, I would imagine, in some of these economic models, right, that they that they fucking cling to. None of them have changed. I guarantee you there's, there's, they're not making any adjustments to their doomsday scenarios because of the, the lockdown for coronavirus, even though that has to have had an effect on climate change. It has to have. By their own logic, it has to have. So wh- where are the new models? Where are the new projections? Oh, yeah, there, there are none because they're all just a bunch of fucking bullshit. So, so now, any, anytime anything happens anywhere in the world, they can be like, well... For the sake of the planet, for the sake of civilization, we have to lock everything down. Unbelievable. It reminds me of the um, the Seinfeld episode with Uncle Leo blaming everything on anti-Semitism. Right? They don't just overcook a hamburger, Jerry. <laughs> but they won't even really have to enforce it because they'll have all these NPC lemmings out there who have bought, bought into this climate change religion doing their dirty work for them. All those Karens and Kyles out there will, will take pleasure in policing the, the rest of uh, their neighborhoods for the police. Who knows how far they can push the limits of this? It may not even be bound by our own borders, right? If, I mean, climate change affects the whole planet. wonder if they'll try to use this for a justification for war. Got to go attack China and lock them down because, you know, climate change... It's the only way we can stop it. I mean, they are, they are the biggest polluters in the world, right? It's why we need politicians like Ron Paul to stand up to this crap and challenge the constitutionality of it. And why we can't have Supreme Court justices sitting on the bench that fight for what they believe in. Okay, we need Supreme Court justices that are going to uphold and defend the Constitution and stop the government from doing all this ridiculous stuff that they have no authorization to do. Because a government that can force you to wear a mask in the name of their manipulated bullshit science or for, you know, the sake of public safety, they can force you to do pretty much anything. It's the pinnacle of totalitarianism. They can force you to take a a vaccination. They can force you to take all sorts of medication after that, right? The vaccination is just the camel's, camel's nose under the tent. They can implant you with God knows what. They can put you in internment camps. They can force you to wear some other sort of identifying symbol. I don't know, like a star. And then they can put you in boxcars. I mean, God damn, do we need more Ron Pauls in this world. I mean, yeah, we had that one judge in Pennsylvania that, that ruled these lockdowns unconstitutional. But that's it. In a country of 300 plus million people, nay, Americans... 300 plus million Americans, the ones who are supposed to be the rugged individuals, the anti-government, pro-liberty, more anti-government and pro-liberty than anyone else in the world. It's amazing how far we've strayed. Now the ones who think they're pro-liberty are walking around with the back the blue hat on. I mean, who do you think is going to be enforcing all this unconstitutional shit the government decides to do to erode our freedoms? They are the blue. They won't be arresting arsonists or rioters or looters. 
They won't be protecting your business or your home from destruction. No, no. They'll be tasing and arresting soccer moms for not wearing a mask outside or for opening your business amidst the climate change lockdown. And I actually have an article here, Ohio mom tased and arrested at middle school football game for not wearing a mask. I'm not going to read the whole article here, but she's basically, you know, she's sitting there. There's there's nobody else around her. She's outdoors. And she refused to leave the, the game after um, not wearing a mask. So she didn't have a mask on. They asked her to leave. She refused. Taser, you're under arrest. That that's great. That's wonderful. How about the people that are fucking burning down cities? Are we gonna do anything with that? No, no, no. We're just gonna go for the, the the peaceful people sitting around watching their their kids' football game without a mask on. But they will be the ones enforcing all of this illegal shit the government's doing. All these lockdowns and, and God knows what else is coming down the pike now that they've established that they can do this. And that the people will willingly sit in their houses for months on end, almost indefinitely. We still don't know how much longer people are going to be doing this. But they will be the ones breaking into your house in the middle of the night and accosting you like Breonna Taylor. She was in the news this week. Her her cops are not, uh, the cops who shot and killed her are not going to face any uh, charges for that. Of course, you know, this is uh, this Breonna Taylor story is being peddled by the, the race baiting politicians as proof. That America is racist and institutional this and that and you guys know the the drill. But I mean, look, this is this is not a race issue. Okay, this is a problem with the laws that are on the books. These raids are technically legal, but they're wrong. They're criminal. The law is wrong, and just because something is legal, just because something is deemed legal by the government, doesn't mean that it's right. And you should be, you know, you should be outraged about Breonna Taylor, but you should be outraged about all the people that get killed in these no-knock raids. They do it to black and white people alike. There's plenty of, of stories out there. You, you don't know any of their names because the media never fucking covers them. The Duncan Lems, the, um, see, I mean, I'm forgetting their names. The, there was like an autistic kid or something that they killed. It's, it's not a, it's not a, a race issue. This is a, a policing issue. This is a militarized police and authoritarian issue. That That's it. And of course, for those of you not familiar with Breonna Taylor, that story, I don't know how you could be, but it was, uh, you know, it was cops serving a, a no-knock warrant, right? And they, so they, they break into somebody's house in the middle of the night and Breonna Taylor's boyfriend Start shooting at him. I mean, he doesn't know what the fuck is going on. You, you wake up in the middle of the night, you're disoriented, and you got a bunch of fucking people with guns in your house. I'd start shooting them too. So they're, they're, they get to claim self-defense after they break into somebody else's house, which is fucking ridiculous. And then even if you are claiming self-defense, how does that apply to Brianna Taylor? <laughs> she wasn't shooting at him. She was just there. Uh, self-defense that that applies to third-party innocent bystanders <laughs> okay uh, i mean this is this is nonsense but they're they're the ones the the most freedom-loving people in america are, are back in the blue here at here at home the the enforcement wing of, of the militarized enforcement wing of the government apparatus but anyway um we knew we knew the second that they made this massive power grab in the United States to to lock our, everything down, to forcefully shut down businesses and handpick who gets to work, who's essential, who's not. We knew that we would never get these liberties back, and we knew that it was going to create precedent for untold amount of further intrusion into our lives. The real scary thing is that the, this whole climate change thing, I mean, this is, there, there's nothing more ridiculous than, than climate change because you can use anything to justify it according to their retarded logic. Anytime there's a fire, it's climate change. Okay, and it's an emergency and civilization depends on it. It doesn't matter how many times they get everything wrong. People believe that people, this is a religion to people. And now they get to use that religion, that dogma, to institute further lockdowns. We can't keep standing for this. We can't keep sitting by and watching them uh, you know, er erode our freedoms like this. And thank God Ron Paul survived that stroke, and he will be around with us to preach the message of liberty 
and hopefully influence a lot more people to to wake up and realize what's happening and the importance of of the, our principles, the principles of libertarianism, of limited government, of individualism, and the non-aggression principle. Because man, we need him now more than ever. We have a, a big fight, uh, a big uphill battle going against these climate change fucking psychopaths and their um, willingness to shut down the world for the sake of civilization. In order to uh, preserve civilization, we're going to destroy civilization. That's a brilliant plan. Anyway, I'm going to wrap there, guys, and try to get on with my Friday night. Have a nice weekend, everybody. I will see you all. No, I won't, but you will hear from me on Monday. Do me a favor. Follow me on Twitter at Pedal Fiction. Give me a five-star rating and review on iTunes. And if you want to become a supporting listener of the show, you can do that by going to pedalingfictionpodcast.com. If you can do all that for me, I will be back with a brand new episode on Monday for you. And until then, you guys know the drill. Just keep on pedaling that so-called fiction. Peace. Peace.